Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're looking at the outcome of the German election. Angela Merkel has been German Chancellor since 2005. Her long period in power will now come to an end, just as soon as Germany forms a new coalition. And it's not just Merkel who's going. The ruling Christian Democrats came second in this election, while the Social Democrats won the largest share of the vote. Their party head, Olaf Scholz, is now likely to be the country's next leader, the first SPD Chancellor since 2005. To discuss the implications of all this, I'm joined this week by Ulrika Franke, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations in London. So, what will the outcome of the German election mean for the country, the European Union and the wider world? On election night in Germany, there was a jubilant atmosphere at SPD headquarters in Berlin. Speaking to the crowd, Olaf Scholz said that Germany's voters had spoken clearly. The next government should be centred around the SPD in coalition with the Greens and the Free Democrats. Die Wählerinnen und Wähler haben auch sehr klar gesprochen. Sie haben gesagt, wer die nächste Regierung bilden soll. Sie hat drei Parteien gestärkt, die Sozialdemokratische Partei, die Grünen und die FDP. Und deshalb ist das But Scholz and the SPD won just over 25% of the vote, according to the early counts. They will only be able to form a government if the coalition negotiations are successful. So I began my conversation with Ulrika Franke by asking if she thinks it's safe to assume that the SPD will indeed form a government, and if so, what difference that will make. I agree that I think we're looking at what's called a traffic light coalition, so an SPD-led coalition with the Greens and the FDP. This is a change insofar as it's no longer a grand coalition. After 16 years of Angela Merkel, it's no longer a CDU-led government. But I think what's Worth noting is that I think the votes for the SPD were actually votes for continuity. I mean, during the campaign, Olaf Scholz very much suggested that he could be the next Merkel. And if you look at who voted for the SPD, it's actually the older people, right? So the SPD won votes overall, but it's primarily the over 60 people, which in Germany is quite a lot, but they lost the youth vote and they lost the youth vote to the two smaller parties, the Greens and the FDP. So in a way, we're going to see a change, but the change primarily, I would say, comes from the two smaller parties, the Greens and the FDP, rather than the SPD. On the SPD, though, presumably because the Chancellor will come from them, they'll get the most ministries, they'll set the tone to some extent. It's been suggested to me that in their long years in opposition, they become a more left-wing party. Is that fair? I think that's definitely fair. So first of all, on setting the tone, because I think this is important, we are looking at a three-party coalition for the first time since the 1950s. So I almost want to say never heard of. Um, and interestingly enough, now the Greens and the FDP together have more seats or the same as the SPD. So setting the tone, yes, sure. And the chancellor has, 
you know, this kind of leadership role in deciding where to go. But we shouldn't underestimate the smaller parties this time around because they really do play a role. I think you are right to note that the SPD over the last few years has actually moved further left. This is primarily on kind of interior politics. The heads of the SPD, the heads of the party, Saskia Esken and Walter Boyans, they are definitely from the left side of the party, while Scholz isn't. And this is the interesting thing, because I felt that during this campaign, Scholz was this figurehead that could convince a broad majority of Germans to vote for the SPD. But I have been wondering to what extent the SPD voters are really aware of all the other people in the party and all the other positions. That being said, of course, there is in fact a little bit of move to the left, at least when it comes to social politics, domestic politics in Germany. But um, it's going to be quite a challenge for Olaf Scholz to keep his party together and keep this coalition um, together. But so far, I have to say the SPD has managed this incredibly well. And I was surprised to some extent. So maybe they'll continue that. Yeah, I mean, people were writing this party off just a couple of years ago and saying it was doomed to long-term secular decline. In fact, at one point, the SPD was almost mocked that they put a chancellor candidate forward at all. You may remember about six months ago, I think the CDU was polling at almost 40%, which, you know, even for the CDU these days, is pretty high. Then in May, the Greens overtook the CDU and it really seemed like this race between the Greens with Annalena Baerbock as chancellor candidate and the CDU with Armin Laschet. And then kind of everything fell apart. And I continue to believe that Olaf Scholz benefited from the weakness of the two other candidates. So for the longest time, we just had this focus on Annalena Baerbock from the Greens and Armin Laschet from the CDU and both have their flaws. So it was this element of, you know, if two are in disputes, it's the third that gets lucky. There's kind of saying in Germany that says this. And I think Olaf Scholz really benefited from this in the end. And we're now entering this period of coalition building, which will probably take months. It's a very German thing. I can't think of many other countries where it takes quite so long to put the government together. Why is that? Is it partly because they have to have a very detailed government program to agree on? Yes. So my hunch is that maybe this time it may not take quite so long, but it's difficult to tell. Four years ago, we had this extraordinary situation that it took, I think, six months to form a government, which I think everyone wants to avoid. And we're already here voices that say by Christmas, we definitely need a new government. Um, but you are right. The reason why it takes that long is that it's not just that the parties genuinely agree to work together, but they really formulate a quite detailed coalition agreement. And this agreement is something that then the government is being judged on for the next four years. And this time, it's not just two parties that need to put together this agreement, but three parties. That being said, it really sounds as if Everyone is trying to hit the ground running. The FDP and the Greens apparently are starting to talk about this. And we have this really interesting situation that now it's the Greens and the FDP that are going to decide the main directions. And then they go to the larger party and basically say, OK, so what do you think of this? So it's quite an interesting dynamic. But my hunch, I may be wrong about this, but my hunch is that maybe it's not going to take quite so long. The only kind of wild card here is... If this so-called traffic-like coalition doesn't work out, if SPD, Greens and, and FDP can't agree, then we're kind of back to square one. Yeah, then I don't know how long it's going to take, but I wouldn't bet on that. And I mean, to look at then the two smaller parties who, as you say, have taken the initiative. I mean, last time around in 2017, I seem to remember there was a lot of expectation that the Free Democrats 
and Christian Lindner would join the government, and then they kind of pulled out. And Lindner himself is quite a controversial figure, isn't it? The French seem to be a bit suspicious of him for reasons I'm not totally sure of. So let's start with them. You know, Liberal Democrats, who are sort of English ears, is a kind of socially left, rather sort of soft party. But he's quite hard-edged, isn't he, on economics? Yes. See, the FDP is an interesting party indeed. So, first of all, Christian Lindner is incredibly important for this party. They actually lost all of their parliamentary seats two elections ago. So, were out of parliament, which was obviously a catastrophe for them. And it was under Christian Lindner four years ago that they managed to re-enter parliament. And now they gained a few votes. They specifically gained the youth vote, which is always kind of nice, even though Germany is a very old country and there are very few young people. So winning the youth vote only means so much. But yes, the FDP is an interesting party. A few things to note. So first of all, they are actually incredibly pro-EU, at least on paper. When you read their party manifesto, they actually advocate for the United States of Europe. They want the United States of Europe. They want a federal state. They want a European army, the whole thing. Obviously not tomorrow, but it's a process. At the same time, and I think this is the reason why people like Emmanuel Macron are a bit worried or, or not quite sure what they should think of the FDP and Christian Lindner, the FDP is also a party of fiscal responsibility, as they would put it. They don't like common debt in the European Union. They don't want Germany to pay for Europe, if you want to call it that. And so they might cause some issues there. And I think the role they're going to play in this new government, they're definitely going to try to get the finance ministry. So they want to have their hand on the money. And they want to make sure that the SPD and Greens just don't overspend on anything and everything. So that's going to be their priority I kind of hope they're also trying to go for the defense ministry because out of the three parties that are currently negotiating with each other, I'd say the FDP has the most competence and also interest in all things military. But we'll see. That's a bit of a personal view here. <laughs> yes. And the Greens, again, obviously the name tells you something. They're, they're an environmentalist party. But I think, you know, for people outside the country may have missed the extent to which at least a large part of the Greens have become quite a transatlanticist party and also very pro-EU. They're less maybe radical than their roots were. Yeah, this is the challenge for the Greens because the Greens do come out of the peace movement, the environmentalist movement, and there's definitely still a substantial group within the Green electorate and the Green members that are quite radical and let's call it radical left. But you're absolutely right that at the same time we have more, yeah, let's call them transatlanticist voices, definitely pro-European. I think pretty much all German parties other than the extreme right and the radical left are pro-European. But this will be one of the challenges for the Greens to kind of bring together these different strands of the party because they really have the kind of more radical youth and then people who earn quite nice wages and all of that that also vote for the Greens and bringing together these different positions is tricky. Yeah. And do you think that Lindner and the Free Democrats and the Greens are going to be able to find common ground? I think so. Four years ago, the Greens and the FDP were the problem of the negotiations because they really couldn't come together. They didn't really like each other. I think this has changed a little bit, partly because we already knew that they may have to work together. So I think they already 
started talking uh, a little while ago in the background. From what I hear, I think people such as Robert Habeck, the current number two in the Greens, but who may end up becoming their number one, depending on how it goes, I think he can work with Lindner quite well. So I think they'll try to find agreements and should be able to do so more than four years ago. So I'm less worried about this uh, this time around. What about the Christian Democrats? I mean, they must be very shocked after being in power for a very long time. Time. And as you say, they were doing well in the polls until quite recently. Does what's happened to them falling behind the SPD, does that suggest the size, I suppose, of the personal mandate for Angela Merkel? Yes, I think it does to some extent. So the CDU lost badly. This is a historical low. They have less than 25% of the votes. And I think in, in large parts, this is due to Armin Laschet. It is also due to the fact that, yes, Angela Merkel just had a lot of personal appeal. I think they're entering a really difficult position now. It kind of looked slightly better when the first prognosis came in Sunday night at 6 p.m. We kind of got the first prognosis. And at this point, SPD and CDU had both 25%. And this was the moment when Armin Laschet actually said, you know, I kind of feel like we have the task to form a government. This clip is now being played over and over again. I think it's a bit unfair because by now we know that the CDU is almost two percentage points lower than the SPD is. And I think they won't. What's going to happen now if they really don't make it into government? And I think that's the most likely option. I think they will try to reconstitute and find a new direction. There were some worries that the party would orient itself more towards the right. And I think this election may have discouraged them from doing so for at least two reasons. Number one, the extreme right AfD did not as well as people feared. I mean, they're still double digit, which isn't great, but they lost votes. So it doesn't feel like there's a huge appetite for, you know, kind of a right wing politics in Germany. Number two, importantly, the CDU had one really controversial candidate, Hans-Georg Maaßen, was really quite right wing and he ran as a candidate of the CDU, which was incredibly controversial. He ran in the eastern state of Thuringia and he lost. So again, another signal for the CDU that maybe moving to the right doesn't quite work for them. And then the third signal is also that when you look at where the voters from the CDU went, most of them went to the SPD. So another signal that moving to the right is not a good idea. So now there is the challenge for the CDU. How do they reconstitute themselves in the opposition while not moving <laughs> too much to the right, um, but getting the votes from the middle back? And that's going to be quite a challenge. And from what I hear, I don't think that Amin Laschet is going to be the one leading that process. Yeah, I mean, one thing you know is that the AFD and Dilinka, the left-wing far-left party, did badly relatively to how they did last mm -hmm. time. And as far as I recall, the 2017 election took place in quite a nasty atmosphere. Merkel shouted down at a lot of rallies. It was only a year and a half after the refugee crisis. But it looks like German politics, maybe a bit unlike the politics of the rest of the Wests, uh, you know, America with Trump, Britain still assimilating Brexit, France, you know, Le Pen will probably get through to the presidential election. But Germany still seems to be very much dominated by the centre with the extremes certainly present. But I was doing the addition, you know, the far left and the far right are about a bit over 15%, but no more. Yeah, I think that is a bit of the good news of this election that indeed both the radical left and the far right lost comparatively. Actually, the left 
almost didn't make it into parliament. We haven't really talked about this a lot because they're a small party anyway, but they lost quite a few percentage points and they only managed to get into parliament because luckily they won three direct mandates, which is quite interesting in and of itself because they didn't even make it over the 5% threshold. So they shouldn't even be in parliament and just got really lucky with their three direct mandates. So clearly they didn't manage to convince the voters. And indeed, the AfD also lost a little bit. That being said, there are in fact two East German states, Saxony and Thuringia, where the AfD got the majority of the vote, which I think is really concerning and bad news. But still, yes, I think Germans have been inoculated a little bit against political extremes. I also think that the AfD over the last four years has shown that they're not that good at politics and governing, so they haven't really played such a great role. But maybe the most important reason why the extremes didn't really manage to get many votes is that there were two main topics in this election season, and that was first climate change in general, but also the kind of management or mismanagement of the floods that we had not too long ago in Nordrhein-Westphalia. And the second topic was COVID and the kind of management or mismanagement of the pandemic. And both were problematic for the CDU and benefited parties such as the Greens. What we did not talk about is migration, as you mentioned, therefore no votes for the AfD, and foreign policy. I mean, it has been incredibly frustrating for people like myself who work primarily on foreign and defense policy to see these, you know, big TV debates. And we had three TV debates between the three chancellor candidates. And we had all these discussions and foreign policy just did not play a role. There was like one question on Afghanistan. And the EU, did did they discuss the future of that? Not really. I think the reason why they didn't is because contrary to what we're going to see in France, for example, the differences between the parties aren't that pronounced. I mean, they're definitely there when it comes to questions like EU defense and how to go forward there or in the kind of fiscal reform within the EU. But it's not this kind of super easy, one is against the EU, the other is in favor of the EU. All German middle parties tend to be pro-European, broadly transatlantic with some caveats. And so somehow that didn't play a role. And I think this is so problematic for the largest country in the EU and such an important player. Um, No one seems to care. And the last thing, I'm mean, talking about the largest country in the EU, I mean, even if the debates were quite parochial, Merkel, partly through longevity, partly because of what she stood for, has become a very important international figure over the course of her 15 plus years in power. Now, she'll be gone in the next couple of months. Sorry, it's a huge question to end on, but I'll, I'll try it. How much do you think the world's going to see a different Germany in the post-Merkel era? And what what are the differences to look for in the way that Germany might interact with the world? It is true that the next chancellor has some big shoes to fill in foreign policy and in the EU. That being said, the German chancellor always tends to be important. So it's not as if there's now this big vacuum because Merkel left. But I think Germany, especially under Merkel, but also in general, has been playing quite a let's call it unifying role within the European Union. Of course, there were some issues. We mentioned the migration crisis, Nord Stream, etc. But overall, I think Germany took on this kind of unifying stance within the EU. And I think this has been recognized and acknowledged by especially smaller member states. To some extent, this was frustrating for people like Macron, who liked this idea of an avant-garde within the EU, a kind of few member states that to go forward and do things together because they're willing and able to do that. 
Merkel was more looking at all 27, wanted to have everyone on board, which quite often means the lowest common denominator, which can be frustrating. And we have this interesting challenge now that this approach to EU politics, I think, made Merkel, but also Germany in general, quite popular within the EU. And a lot of Europeans are actually looking to Germany to lead the EU now. However, if you want to lead, you may have to abandon the stance a little bit because it's really difficult to make any kind of decisions at 27. So that's going to be the big challenge for the next chancellor. What can we expect kind of really briefly? Um, I would put it this way, especially on the traditional transatlantic alliance focused on NATO, focused on European defense. I think this will be harder to do under an SPD-led traffic light coalition because two of the three parties in this coalition don't really care that much about the military realm, about defense. They don't really subscribe to the NATO 2% goal. They may end up ending Germany's role in NATO's nuclear sharing, which would be a huge issue for NATO and for the transatlantic alliance. So there are definitely some problems ahead on that. At the same time, one change we can expect with this new government, especially because we know that the Greens and the FDP are pretty much guaranteed to be in the next government, these are two parties that tend to take stronger positions on human rights, on international law, and that means stronger positions on China. So for me, that's the big changes we're going to see. That was Ulrika Franke of the European Council on Foreign Relations, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. I hope you'll join me again next week. And before we go, if you're an FT subscriber, you might be interested in joining FT journalists on Monday, October the 4th, for a webinar on the outcome of Germany's election and its implications for Germany and the rest of the world. Register at ft.com slash German webinar. <laughs>